friends and lovers, welcome to the Thoughts on Film podcast. Delighted to have you with us. My name is Scott Morris, and I'm joined today by Mr. Drew Davendale. Hail fellows, well met. Another month draws to an end, so we are just going to talk about some films that we saw during the month, because that's what we do for this time of the month. A varied bunch to get through, some of it's just clearing out the last remnants of Halloween. So a few horror films there, more than you'd expect, given their normal position on horror films, but I guess we'll just crash straight on to the first one, unfortunately, uh, which is Apostle. Uh, Drew, tell us about that. Yes, well, you say horror film, that's not (laughs) necessarily what I was imagining by it, that's more just like the process of watching this, but... uh, (laughs) It's certainly horrible. Yes, exactly. (laughs) The horror, the horror. Uh, (laughs) After the excellent The Raid and its considerably less excellent sequel, director and writer Garth Evans takes the unusual step of making a The Wicker Man-inspired time travel film. (laughs) Beginning in Britain in 1905, Dan Stevens' Thomas Richardson is tasked with infiltrating a strange cult, from whence has come a ransom demand for his sister. Boarding a boat, he travels to the miserable island of Erison, which, unaccountably, is located in 17th century Massachusetts. (laughs) There he finds cult leader Malcolm, Michael Sheen, overseeing a miserable bunch of acolytes who seem oblivious of such modern conveniences as the word month, and who consider themselves persecuted by the king, seemingly because they're evading taxes. Indeed, the king has apparently sent an assassin to attempt to kill Malcolm, and Thomas takes the opportunity to earn the prophet's trust. At this point, the prophet knows that the brother of the woman being held to ransom is on the island, but he doesn't know which of the new arrivals he is, by stopping the hitman, becoming injured in the process. Oh, and how does Prophet Malcolm know that the assassin came from the king? Because, and I am not making this up, he recognises the king's markings on the assassin's dagger. (laughs) In 1905. (laughs) I can only assume that Evan spent far too much time watching Game of Thrones while writing his screenplay. Again, I mentioned that this is supposed to be set in 1905, the 20th century. The king is unlikely to even be aware of the existence of these people, let alone have a personal tax-based grudge. <laughs> and even if, for some reason he did, not that the 20th century British kings had such power anyway. There's no apparatus for this sort of thing. <laughs> it's so stupid. It's, uh, but yeah, even if he did, for some reason, you know, have a have a vendetta or a grudge against him, then tax matters, again, the 20th century, tax matters are not dealt with through the medium of knives by assassin, but rather through the medium of letters by post. <laughs> That's how they got Al Capone, assassin <laughs> when the king showed up and daggered. <sighs> this film, man, this film. Yeah, and only gets stupider from here. Though he's on the island to rescue his sister... Another aside, it's clear why he's on the island, but not why anyone else is. (laughs) Summer Isle, from the Wicker Man on the surface, at least seemed like an appealing place to be. Erison (laughs) is a miserable place full of misery. (laughs) I think that's what they're mining, right? They're just pulling misery directly out of the earth. (laughs) Uh, There's a rich vein of misery to be um, in them, their hills. (laughs) Thomas does seem to be going out of his way to avoid every opportunity to help his sister. (laughs) In the meantime, he discovers that the inhabitants are expected to deposit jars full of blood outside of their doors at night, a sort of icky reverse milk delivery, (laughs) with which to fill the literal river of blood that runs beneath the island. 
the eventual purpose of this? To feed the nature goddess, who is both the focus of the community's pagan rituals and its (laughs) slave. This supernatural element is both confusing and boring, so it's a waste in keeping with the rest of the film. (laughs) Stevens Thomas is a particularly dull and uninspiring protagonist, though he's hardly set apart from the rest of the cast by these adjectives. Poor Michael Sheen, the best thing in a film by a country mile, yet still largely terrible, deserves so much better than this especially as Evan seemingly forgot to write any compelling reason for these people to be following this so-called prophet, and he's clearly struggling to create charisma from nothing. The story gives way to gore and torture porn as the film proceeds over its three-day running time, (laughs) with nary a sign of any point to anything. This is one of the most confusing, dull and downright awful things I've watched in a good long time, and I strongly urge you to avoid this. Utter pish. <laughs> yes. What? <laughs> um, I can't even find the words, can you? <laughs> no, not really. What a stupid film. Um, yes. I just don't understand an awful lot of things in this film. I, I get the impression that we're not really supposed to understand most of it, and it's aiming for being more of a kind of eerie mood piece, but it's more of a ring piece. Um, it's, <laughs> it's just so many unforced errors. I mean, if, you, if you're going to do the whole kind of... I, you, you can see the parallels between this and The Wicker Man. So I guess if you did like that sort of thing and don't mind things not making any sort of sense, you may get some joy out of this. But The Wicker Man was coherent in what it did it didn't have to pretend that it was being set three centuries before it actually was for some reason and just don't don't have it set start in the (laughs) don't have it start in 1905 if you're going to just become pointlessly anachronistic about the whole thing later on it doesn't really make a great deal of sense at all it's just a mishmash of pointless things that just didn't bring any intrigue to it or any interest to it it's just all of this would have worked better if you just set it a couple of hundred years earlier and not mentioned anything more about it then you get away with all this king nonsense and you're we might have forgiven the weird language that it's using for no good reason and yep. why these people are buying into it and what the point of any of it is and why anyone would be attracted to this cult in the first place what what is the selling point here yeah I mean, that's why i said about it being feel like it's from 17th century massachusetts because it feels yeah. like it should be the setting for the crucible yes um, and you can imagine that at that point there are like a small village in a in a colony geographically far away from anywhere else in a time when it was difficult to travel fast or far. Mm. Not in somewhere where the film literally starts with a train. Yes. <laughs> a train hurtling along a valley. It's like, <sighs> uh, yes, there's there's not really anything else to be gleaned from this film as far as I'm concerned. Um, as I say, Michael Sheen is the most watchable thing in a film that is unwatchable. So there's that, I guess. <laughs> um, it is, t- to be fair, um, despite it being sort of purposely bleak and miserable, it's quite well shot. It's quite well captured bleak miserableness, but it's not in a way that's actually fun to watch or anything. Um, I suppose it's put together acceptably as a film in, in terms of that the kind of mechanics of it. Evans, Edwards? Evans. Gareth Evans. I keep getting those mixed up. Gareth Evans uh, has put together something that looks like a film. If you dip into it now and again, you could probably be mis- forgiven for mistake- mistaking it for a proper film. Uh, <laughs> but uh, something with a story this banal and 
no real tension despite his efforts, no real interest, lots of things that just left us scratching our heads and really not really yeah, no, no real entertainment to be had from it. It was a very boring two hours. And, yeah, and um, <laughs> yeah. Um, she's mentioned that um, Scott and I watched this together along with his wife. And we were three pretty smart people. They are all watching this, having with the combined efforts of the years, no idea what was happening or why. <laughs> yes, it's, uh, why is this happening? Because nature, God, apparently. Yes. Like, okay, fine, whatever. Not interested. Move on. Yeah, no. <laughs> they pull out um, a revelation about this um, nature goddess thing at the end, as if it's meant to be some sort of great reveal. And but like, don't care. Yes. I absolutely don't care. <laughs> no, not even remotely invested in this. Yes, quite literally, <laughs> could not care less by this point. I would like my three days back, please. <laughs> Glowing anti recommendation <laughs> on Apostle yes. for us. Yes. Yeah, I didn't even feel have even the shred of charity that you had, Scott, to try and drag some positives out of this. But at least it was like um, technically competent. But yeah. it didn't merit that sort of um, level of backhanded compliment from you. Or to damn it with the faintest of faint praise. Just the backhands from now on. Yes, yes um, that's what this film deserves. Oh, no, it is awful. Please avoid it. Yes. We're going to move on from that then to. Something, well, to be honest, wasn't doing a great deal better in the whole what the hell's going on at why front, but at least it was a bit more enjoyable. Uh, Scott, the night comes for us. Yes, so like last month's Mandy, the night comes for us, came for us, on the back of a wave of positive Twitter takes, although with more of a hard-hitting chop-socky vibe rather than a my-brain-has-melted-in-nick-cages-incredible-slash-terrible-slash-incredibly-terrible feelings that Mandy provoked. Um, Terribly incredible. Yes. Um, You may be asking, dear listener, why I'm talking so much about Mandy in an introductory paragraph for a different film. And, well, spoilers, is because there's not really all that much of interest in The Night Comes for Us. Now, recapping the plot would be a little difficult for reasons I'll get to, uh, but the short of it is that Elise Triad Enforcer Ito, played by Joe Talsum, has a very sudden change of heart in the middle of a good old-fashioned village massacre and decides to protect the last surviving child, performing a counter-massacre on his former triad buddies. Injured, he returns home to Jakarta with a kid, holding up in his old girlfriend's apartment. Spooked, she calls in the old gang of street criminals he used to run with before he was elevated to this elite henchman position. This turn of events doesn't go down too well with Triad Lieutenant Chen Wu, played by Sonny Pang, who orders that Ito be captured alongside anyone who gets in their way, enlisting Ito's former fellow gang member Arian, played by Iko Uwes, uh, with the task alongside Chen Wu's own trusted band of weirdos. Cue a bunch of fighting and shooting in what's as much of an action movie as a martial arts one. Unfortunately, though, not a particularly good one. I I like to pretend to myself that I'm moderately clever, uh, but following what was going on here and why was entirely beyond me. Now, (laughs) to a degree, plot's immaterial in this sort of thing. The best Tony Jaa film is about a man trying to reclaim an elephant, but... (laughs) (laughs) There is a sort of basic overall coherence and some sort of character motivation that's required as a bare minimum, and even with allowance for genre conventions, that night comes for us spectacularly anti-hurdles this lowest possible bar. For example, <laughs> a character appears out of nowhere. Literally, she walks in out of the mist, and her interest in proceedings is never explained, nor is she even named, but seemingly because by that point they'd killed off all bar one of the protagonists and just wanted to have some more fight scenes. And 
even then, those fight scenes, which should be this movie's saving grace, are mostly just okay. The most remarkable thing about them would be the level of graphic violence on display. This film makes no compromises and sometimes feels more like a body horror than an action film. Mm-hmm. And I won't deny there's a certain amount of enjoyment to be had from the extremity of that in a genre that's so often PG-friendly. Yeah, but for the first hour. Yes, but that's maybe 10 minutes or so of the film and the rest is an utter chore. The, a lot of the action is filmed quite flatly, which is perhaps mm-hmm. initially a welcome change from the shaky cam-obsessed modernity, but it soon feels quite stodgy. And the remainder of the film is a half dozen good ideas for a fight uh, sequences, a half dozen ideas for nice visuals, and the rest of the film appears to be randomly generated from plot strands from other genres and stock photography of the world's dullest warehouses. In <laughs> Conclusion, I award this Watch Mandy out of 10. <laughs> well, largely agree with all of that. It's just, it's unnecessarily long, particularly given mm. this a film that has no plot. <laughs> and again, another film we watched in the same location this time, and we're both kind of like, who's she? Why is this happening? Why are they in their fifth language now? <laughs> yes. Because it's the point when, like, they suddenly, suddenly to the character start speaking French. Why? <laughs> no call for it. I mean, the plot's an absolute convoluted mess for no good reason. Yeah. Um, in particular, trying to work out... It, it seems like it's one big get-out. Is that scene where they cut back to Chen Wu explaining something, I think it was, to um, Arian, who's basically saying, oh, in the end, I'm just trying to sow chaos, so apparently so someone can come in and take over. So I go, okay, so that, that's your excuse for all your actions making no sense. And you stating an aim and then immediately doing things that are entirely counter to that aim. It's like, just just daft. Uh, It's one of these things, it's not really plot twists, it's just like a big lump of plot spaghetti that's dumped out onto a plate and it's like, here, deal with this. It's like, I don't want to deal with that. I just wanted to see some heads getting staved in and you don't even do that (laughs) particularly well. So, Um, And they added sort of the cliche thing of, oh, you're being played by this other gangster thing. Like, really? I'm not quite sure how this works out, but okay. But, um... But it have not really done any establishing of that character anyway. And yeah. then at the end of the film, where it's like you understand what's happening um, right at the final scene, but it doesn't actually make any sense because unless a hugely crippled person can move several miles in 30 seconds or whatever, it's you know, not feasible. When <laughs> <laughs> the focus of a film like this is the, the fight scenes, but yeah, they just get tremendously samey after a while and they're just. They're just going for the sake of being going. Like, yeah, the martial arts stuff isn't particularly interesting. It's just, it's people just taking a lot of punishment. Yeah. Like a lot, a lot of punishment. <laughs> yes. A, a, an unfeasible amount of punishment. <laughs> just so you can have lots of broken limbs and razor blades across faces and pools mm. of blood. And yeah, you're right about the the visuals too. And I, I'm not a fan of the hyperkinetic editing and shaky cam of something like the fight scenes in the Bourne films in particular. Mm-hmm. It just, can you not just keep it still for a bit to have an, any idea what's happening at all, please? Uh, yeah. Whereas I think perhaps this film goes a bit too far in the other extreme is that a lot of the f- scenes are just very statically shot. And the other thing... Yeah, yeah. I do wonder if... The, I, I didn't actually check what budget this is, but I don't think it's particularly high, right? And it, it did seem like maybe they just didn't have enough cameras to go around. <laughs> so they, like they just put one in the corner of the room and had to make do. <laughs> I mean, that's feasible, yeah. Um, <laughs> but you could have done something um, yeah. a bit more interesting. And it's not just the, the actual editing or the camera work, it's the actual sets as well. Mm. There are a couple of... I mean, and they're not particularly original 
but there are a couple of kind of moody scenes of neon lights and light filtering through glass bricks and stuff that just creates a couple of moody shots. But for the most part, it's all shot and very, well, I should say, Scott, warehouses. There's a lot mm. of warehouses in this film, because yeah, warehouses are cheap, I know, but um, <laughs> a lot of very flat lighting, fluorescent overhead lights and things, and it's just, it's visually unappealing. And you add to that the fact that you don't know what's going on or why, and that the fights just go on unnecessarily long. And it's actually kind of a chore to get through. Yeah. I mean, there are some really entertaining bits in it, and some of the fights are quite impressive, and kudos to them for going all in on the blood and gore, because they've done quite a lot of it, but um, yeah. I'm not sure it's to any particularly useful end. It looks like it just it doesn't stop. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd have to agree, watch Mandy out of ten, because <laughs> even if you don't like Mandy, um, which I can certainly understand, um, because I don't like Mandy, but also like Mandy, <laughs> it's one of those films, it is at least interesting yeah and also nick cage (laughs) yes there's probably a very enjoyable 10 minute cut of this film like it's just some sort of super cut that will appear at some point on youtube of just like the most the most impressive bits of the fight and violence but um yeah as a i mean it's not even a short film i think this was two hours as well it's not a it was dragging out a bit as well Mm -hmm. it's just does not have either the content or well, really the interest to maintain over that length. Just to sum it up, uh, one of the tweets we got in, uh, was from the Exploding Helicopter podcast at Chopper Firewall on Twitter, uh, who says, The night comes for us has an impressive fight scenes, but the story and characters are so unengaging, it's like watching an extended martial arts demonstration, uh, which is entirely right. Uh, yep. It would be far more enjoyable as a film if this were simply just the martial arts demonstration and only had the, the good grace to take up 10 to 15 minutes of your time rather than <laughs> two hours of just convoluted nonsensical plots and characters that with motivations that don't seem to make any kind of sense to anyone yeah just a, a real disappointment um, I'd, I'd allowed myself to, to build up hopes for this a little bit based on the kind of twitter feedback i'd been getting and some of the um reviews from one of the fests fantastic fest or whatever one this came out a while back and some people say it was a really great martial arts film and i was really looking forward to one because it's been a while since i've seen uh seen one like this but this this ain't it no, not even for genre fans i could recommend this no just skip this one too yep sad to say but it's true Right, next up on our list, a little bit of a change of pace, uh, Flavours of Youth. Yes, a co-production between Japanese studio Comex Wave and the Chinese Howliners Animation League. Flavours of Youth is an animated anthology that has been distributed by Studio Canal Netflix. Uh, just by coincidence that almost everything we've watched this week has come via Netflix, but yeah. <laughs> uh, clearly taking its lead from Comex's most famous collaborator, Makoto Shinkai, Flavors of Youth has tried to weaponize and industrialize the themes of nostalgia and lost <laughs> youth that permeate Shinkai's work, but with considerably less efficacy. The first segment, The Rice Noodles, is set in Beijing and a small factory town and involves a young man reminiscing about the literal flavors of his youth. <laughs> Though it clearly tries to use the different noodle dishes he has tried as a framing device for what he has lost, it is, really, not at all unfair to reduce this segment to Noodles aren't as good as the noodles I had before. <laughs> this segment in particular suffers from a failing common to much of Shinkai's work, which is that it's very difficult to buy into the sense of nostalgia and that feeling of something lost when the protagonist is, 
at most in their early 20s, and so only a handful of years removed from the crucial events. Unlike the films of Makoto Shinkai, however, this failing is not counterbalanced by strikingly beautiful animation or compelling story. The second segment, A Little Fashion Show, is set in Guangzhou and tells the tale, barely, of two orphan sisters who now live together in the city. The older sibling, Yu Li, is a famous fashion model, but the one who senses her time in the spotlight is coming to an end, and tries various health-impacting ways to prolong her career. During these travails, she falls out with her younger sister Lulu, whom she has been neglecting. Lulu spends much time secretly designing clothes. You will never guess how the story of a fashion model lacking confidence and her clothes designing sister plays out. Never, I tell you. It turns out they make really good noodles and they just go back to you. And so it's on to Shanghai for the final segment, Love in Shanghai, in which a young architect discovers amongst his belongings while moving into a new apartment a mixtape, given to him without his knowledge by his teenage love. It contains a message that would have changed the course of his life, and he missed it. Wow, many drama. Such teenage. (laughs) Well, no, since it has no impact anyway in anything that happens, it seems. A post-credits coda, which forces the three stories together, adds precisely Zip... And having been anticipating this because of Comex Wave's involvement, it yeah. saddens me to say that it's really not very good. And I can't recommend it, even at its very slight 74-minute running time. Mm-hmm. A genuine pity. I am disappointed. <laughs> also, so before you um, you say your piece, Scott, uh, I was particularly struck to, and I don't know, Maybe because of the translation from the Mandarin, maybe some sort of nuance is left, but I don't think so. There's a a stupid line which kind of struck me as being emblematic of just the kind of really crappy storytelling in this, or generally poor storytelling. That coda at the end, one of the characters says, look, look how close the planes are. It's a (laughs) f***ing airport! (laughs) Sorry, it's a um, fracking airport. <laughs> well, where do you expect the planes to be? <laughs> These planes are so close, I barely have to be fired out of this cannon just to, <laughs> just to get into it. It's almost as though you could walk into it. Um, I can't remember if that was in uh, the version I listened to. For whatever reason, I decided I'd watch the English dub for it Ooh. rather than the one. I'm not quite sure what, what possessed me, um, which... <laughs> I don't really think helped or hindered it, to be honest. Um, it's, I watched this for an hour and ten minutes and was fine with it. I don't, I don't feel like I've wasted that amount of my time, but it, it was moderately entertaining throughout all that. But it's, it is three little short films that don't really connect in any meaningful way and don't have enough time to really tell much of a story in their allotted uh, time. So it was a thing that I watched <laughs> and it was okay. Yeah, like yourself, I'd, I think because, again, we sort of saw the, tra- the trailer for this in part of the same Netflix session. It was something we were looking forward to, I guess, as you mentioned, just through the, the connections with the studio. Uh, but it's just not particularly great. It's, it's very tough to recommend it. I don't think it's you know, bad enough to say that anyone should... Do- avoid it like the plague or anything like that and if you're in the mood for some entirely undemanding anime uh, to pass an hour or so it's an okay choice but it's not particularly 
interesting or meaningful. It's it's not really well animated. It looks the backgrounds are okay, I suppose, but the rest of it's not particularly great. None of the characters are fleshed out. None of it feels like it's actually doing anything that it's claiming to do. It's not trying to. Sorry, it doesn't actually evoke any of these feelings of nostalgia. The last segment probably tries its best. It's really overplaying its hand with what you could do with this tape. And yeah, maybe just the dub, but there, he's being particularly histrionic about um, missing this tape and, and what's happened with his life in the interim. And it's a bit cloying, but at least it's putting a bit more emotion into it than, yeah, than, than not having the right kind of noodles. So, um, <laughs> Look, it's hard to recommend it really to anyone. Um, if if you're in the mood for an anime, it's it's on Netflix. It's not going to be costing you any more than it would otherwise. But yeah, it's even with it being at the other end of about two clicks on a mouse, <laughs> it, it's still hard to recommend it. And it would be even if this had been shown at a cinema, for example, there's no way it could possibly recommend anyone make the effort to try no. and go and see it on that basis. So yeah, okay. This is as far as we'll go with this, but again, watch Mandy out of 10. Yeah, um, I don't know. <laughs> what I would say instead as a genuine recommendation is to, while Makoto Shinkai does seem to largely tell the same story over and over again, uh, there are a few Makoto Shinkai shorts as well as his excellent Your Name, but uh, Makoto Shinkai shorts like Five Centimetres Per Second and The Garden of Words, which are much more affecting, much more effective, um, strikingly beautiful animation, which is one of his real mm-hmm. standouts. Uh, so I'd urge you, rather than going for Flavours of Youth, which is they're taking his shtick, but doing it in a very processed, derivative way. Mm-hmm. So if you seek out some Makoto Shinkai work instead, which may take a bit more effort, uh, but will be far more rewarding in the end. Yes, not a bad call indeed. Okay, so back on to horror. Ken, as you mentioned in the introduction, Scott, that's quite unusual for us. Let's never do this again. But, yes. <laughs> but the the new Halloween film, I believe you saw that. Yes. And I believe you... Well, let's, I'm not going to give away the ending. <laughs> Did you like the new Halloween film, Scott? Let's tell the people that. I stand by my Twitter review of a dancing poop emoji. Yeah, so Halloween, the latest in the Halloween franchise, a franchise proving as difficult to kill as the series antagonist, asks us to disregard all but Carpenter's original covered in podcast Passim. This is easy enough for me, as the only one I've seen is the Rob Zombie remake, which did not encourage further exploration, because it was a third festival. So, yes, and the only good Rob Zombie film ever is, well, no Rob Zombie films apart from that small part of A House of Thousand Corpses when Sid Haig is dressed as a clown and tells the woman that he's got some very important clown business, so I'm going to be taking your car because that clown business supersedes any plans you may have for the day. Official clown business. Official clown business, yes. So, here we are, 40 years on from the original, with Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode still traumatised by the events of that fateful night, having been turned into a doomsday prepper of sorts, with her doom imagined as the big lad in a boiler suit and a cheap mask, Canadian funny man Michael Myers, or the shape, as I'm apparently supposed to call him. Hard pass on that. <laughs> sorry, I, sorry, Scott, but the, I had seen some mention of the shape somewhere, and I've only ever seen the original Halloween, which isn't good. Um, mm. I, I have discovered, having watching it, well, for the first time since it was eight years old um, <laughs> last week. It's like, 
Oh, this film's entirely unremarkable. Okay. Uh, yeah, why, given that from the beginning he had a name to, to become known as The Shape? Explain that to me, please. You are asking entirely the wrong person. I, <laughs> I presume know, it's because. Funny answer. Uh, I presume it's because Michael Myers has a shape. Therefore, is The Shape? I'm not sure. Trapezoid? <laughs> that would be better. Don't take a huge A horror film where you're being. <laughs> Haunted by just abstract geometric shapes, I think would be a substantially better film, certainly than this one. <laughs> but with the bulk of modern horror, I would say. Like that bit in Inside Out. <laughs> yes. Uh, so Myers is currently locked up under the care of one Dr. Sartain before a pair of annoying podcasters show up to provide background information and general exposition for anyone who missed the first film and in some fashion I can't quite remember kicks off the events that leads to Myers escaping during a prison transfer and returning to Haddonfield to finish his job. Meanwhile in Haddonfield, Laurie's in the middle of family troubles. Her granddaughter, Alison, played by Andy Matchak, is fine with her, but her daughter, Karen, Judy Greer, hasn't quite forgiven her for being raised to be perpetually battle-ready for a threat that never arrived and would rather Alison live a normal childhood rather than a Myers prepper. Oh, the is irony. Is this Terminator 3? Basically, yes. It's, <laughs> it is that from it. Anyhow, as you'd expect, the family must in the end band together to face off against the rampaging Myers after he's done butchering about five times as many people as he did in the first film. Now, to be scrupulously fair, there are some elements in David Gordon Green's effort that aren't a parade of turds. There's a misleading scene during Meyer's initial escape that's the only time this film gets close to the tension that was, for me anyway, the point of the Carpenter film. And Jamie Lee Curtis is really great here. And that leads to a ten minute sequence at the end that, where the rest of the film on that same level, would make this a really good film. Unfortunately, the remainder of the film is a turgicopia. <laughs> Rather than link back to Carpenter's films, this is much more inspired by the end point of the arc Carpenter started in the slasher subgenre with Myers chopping up dozens of people you don't care about in a curiously boring set of murders as entertainment, and deaths without any meaning behind them just feels trite these days, a throwback to an era that I wasn't all that enamoured with in the first place. Set against this, it's hard to care all that much about Alison's boyfriend and school troubles. There's not much point in grounding your heroes in reality when the rest of the film is so wildly unrealistic. Which brings us to Dr. Sartain, and what I believe is the single most offensive plot twist I've ever come across, a completely nonsensical, idiotic, insulting, downright turditary moment that by <laughs> itself would have me wanting to put this film in a bag and set fire to it on someone's doorstep. But in the rest of a film where nothing else of interest is happening anyway, uh, I suppose you just have to let it slide. Now, there are people who like this film, I'm told, even some people whose opinion I normally respect, and yes, Colin Erica, I am talking to you. <laughs> I am staggered by this, as I can't imagine anyone putting up with any of this film's nonsense after that turn of events. A turn of events is like a turn of events, but much worse. <laughs> it makes this mediocre film enragingly insufferable, and as such, I recommend you do not suffer this carnival of turds. In conclusion, I award this watch Mandy out of 10. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it's quite obvious that <laughs> I am never going to watch this film. It's a genre that I am continually disappointed by. You so, win. <laughs> it sounds like it. I, I have come away with the grand prize of the evening. Um, <laughs> okay, so yes, moving swiftly onwards from this to anything, anything. Let's take a look at Sicario 
2, uh, Day of the Soldier, Soldado, very confusing subtitle, not quite sure what the deal is with that, but anyway, true, yes. you can explain it for me, can't you? I can't explain the title because I don't know why it's in two different languages for no reason. Yes. Like, <laughs> Sicario makes sense because it's Spanish for Hitman, okay? But then why have you put Soldier in Spanish but not Day of the in Spanish? <laughs> why is that? It doesn't make any sense given Soldado, it's just Soldier and it's quite similar to the English word anyway. <laughs> no. Anyway, the least of this film's problems, uh, as mm. we'll get to. Josh Brolin saw on flip-flops this time and Benicio Del Toro returned as CIA agent Matt Graver and lawyer turned hitman Alejandro in Sicario Day of the Soldado as we mentioned which sees the continuing war on drugs escalate after Islamist terrorists from Yemen yet also somehow we later find out from New Jersey I'm confused <laughs> cross into the United States with a group of migrants from Mexico I wonder is this a common fear in the US? Or is this film where the Orange Douche Canoe got that particular idea for <laughs> Islamic terrorists hiding in that caravan from Honduras? And they set off bombs in supermarkets and other public places. These events see the cartels classified as terrorists and also people classified as drugs, given there are no <laughs> drugs in this film, yet it's about the war. And I'm quite confused. Uh, <laughs> and Graver tasked with creating inter-cartel conflict, which for some reason necessitates a trip to Somalia. Uh, I believe the Mexican cartels are big in eastern Africa. (laughs) This involves false flag assassinations, kidnapping and, well, that's about it really. This film barely has a story. There's the De Rigueur betrayal, but in this case, unlike the first film, it's nameless and impersonal and, well, I don't know what more to say really. (laughs) While Sicario, Day of the Solero, stupid <laughs> na- that's an ice cream now, stupid name aside, is a competent, well-produced and entertaining enough film, I'm left wondering what the point of it is. Yeah. Denny Villeneuve's Sicario was one of the best films of 2015, and admittedly not hugely original, but captivating, thrilling and incredibly tense story set in the war between US authorities and Mexican drug cartels, which portrayed the moral ambiguity if not moral bankruptcy, of those involved in the US side of the conflict. It did not, however, need or invite a sequel. Yet here the sequel is, because original <laughs> ideas in Hollywood are rarer than hen's teeth. I've seen Sicario 2 described as close to the original, but, crucially, missing a heart, or perhaps a soul. And I think that sums up a lot of the problems very well. Emily Blunt was that heart and soul in the 2015 film. Yeah. An idealistic FBI agent forced to betray her principles and operate in shades of grey, if not outright black. She was the viewer's guide in this world and its anchoring point, but the sequel lacks much characterization at all, and certainly has no hero, anti or otherwise. Indeed, there may not be a single likeable or sympathetic character in the whole film. Returning scribe Taylor Sheridan's script is serviceable, but his skill for tension and character, as shown in Wind River or Hell Hell or High Water, seems to have deserted him here, with much of the action perfunctory and cliched, and the politicians are all craven, spineless, self-serving asshats and all others are expendable shtick may be true, but it's way beyond played out. Compounding things is Stefano Solima's direction which like the script is perfunctory but nothing special a pale imitation of Villeneuve's film and noticeably lacking the Canadian's panache 
It would be unfair to call Day of the Soldado a bad film, but it is unnecessary and, sadly, sets up another potential sequel in its final scene, so I hesitate to recommend it. There's a good chance you'll enjoy it fairly well, though if you do watch it, skip the final 15 minutes as they don't make a lot of sense. But it's such a lesser film than the original, and again, it's so pointless that you're probably better off looking for something more rewarding. Uh, I was thinking, an hour into Sicario 2, I'm quite enjoying this. I would like to see where it's going. And the problem is, at the end, an hour later, I was still thinking exactly the same thing because it circled back to exactly the same point. It doesn't go anywhere. And I had three minutes of film left. There's only one thing I'd take issue with what you're saying. I don't think it is a good script. This, it manages to get away with it by evoking enough goodwill from the last film to drive to make you think that something's going to happen of any interest or of any kind of meaning or you'll have any sort of character development or you might get to know anything about any of the people that are showing up on screen and having watched it completely I don't think it does this film doesn't really do anything and is basically one big holding pattern <laughs> it's the phantom menace of the presumed, uh, I think they have confirmed to make another one, right? Um, I'm not sure about that. Or even, if, or if they don't, it's certainly just it's, it's on that level. It's a film where you can sum up in about a sentence, where anything actually interesting happened will be be able to recap in the next one in the first two minutes of it. There doesn't seem to be any particular need to tell the story. None of the characters have any need to be doing anything that they're doing. You're absolutely right in as much as it, it really needs some sort of Emily Blunt analogue in here just to give some sort of grounding to what's going on. Mm-hmm. They're sort of trying to force Benicio Del Toro into that role and failing miserably because he's it's, it, clearly he's been written to do that without having done any of the things that you would need to be to be in that position. Uh, he, he's just left to flounder around. There's enough talent around this film to kind of paper over some of the cracks. The direction is okay. I mean, I don't, I don't know this guy's work, but I think he did a lot of um, a lot of TV work for so like some of the... Um, he did uh, 10 episodes of the Gamora TV series, yeah, which was based on the 2007 film. Yeah. Um, I don't that's um, mafia stuff like that. It's not quite the same as here, but yeah. he's got... Um, you can put stuff together competently, I think, but it's just, it's nothing remarkable. Yeah. So it's that. I mean, of course, you've still got Del Toro, he's still great, and um, the, all the rest of that, Josh Rowland, all that kind of stuff, they're, they're all really good. I mean, a lot of bit per, part performances from Catherine Keener, all that kind of helps you think there's something more going on here than there actually is. The music's uh, particularly good. Of course, uh, Joanne Johansson's uh, sadly passed away, but the, the replacement they've got, who is um, Hildur Gunnard's daughter, or... Apologies, something along those lines, but yeah, uh, another. It's, it's a great piece, great pieces of music, but they don't actually match anything that's going on in the screen. Particularly towards the end of it, when they're they're in the helicopter going away at the end and just playing the big pounding music as though something exciting is going to happen. What's happening? The end credits. <laughs> it's just it didn't quite match up, but at least I appreciate the effort and uh, it, it looks good. Uh, you can't get Roger Deakins back, but uh, Darius Wolski is a particularly good replacement for that sort of thing. Uh, so it still looks great. Is it? It feels slick. It feels like it's got everything that should be a, a good film, but it doesn't actually do anything. And it's well put together. It has no flair. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but the script's awful. 
absolute mess relies so heavily on three, no, two, two huge, huge coincidences and one extremely unlikely event of someone's way. Look, one of those I might have let slip, but all all three of those in the last hour just have you thinking this is this has been put together very slapdash. This this yes. must have been cranked out. Some, is, this is this is what you would write on your bus on the way to the studio. You know what I mean? Um, There's also one that made me particularly irritated, which is one character doing one particular thing against explicit orders, and like. I'm not buying it because that character's been set up so firmly to be like, he would not blink an eye at doing this mm. thing at all and then doesn't. Uh, eh? mm, no, yeah. don't think so. Yeah, um, again, that's one thing. Oh, we need to have some semblance of a hero here, so let's do that. But it doesn't It doesn't make any sense for that character. Um, and this whole film just doesn't seem to make any sense. There's no reason for it to exist. Um, yeah. you know, d- despite all that I'm saying, and I don't think it's a good film, but it's a film that I watched for two hours and thought was and was entertained throughout it. Yeah, that's um, exactly how I thought. This. Apart from that last bit, which is um, the set of the sequel and the bit I just mentioned, and the fact that there should have been some extra consequence to something happened to another character um, physically. Mm-hmm. But um, yes. apart from that, yes, I was enjoying it. It's just like, yeah, but, but there's no point to this film. Why does this film exist? Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know, I'm in a strange position. I find it very hard to recommend it because it, it doesn't deserve to be recommended yet at the same time. It's somehow entertaining enough that it, certainly yeah. if, you, if you enjoyed the first Sicario and if you didn't enjoy the first Sicario, what sort of monster are you? <laughs> uh, you will get some entertainment out of this, but it is just entertainment. It's in no way a good film. It's not going to actually provoke any sort of reflection on any of the policies on display here. Uh, whereas the first Sicario was very much felt like it was... Uh, very much in the moment, it felt like it was all its time. It felt like it was actually reflecting something that was going yeah. on in society. This film is just a film. Yeah, a lot of moral ambivalence in the first film. Yeah, it's uh, just not really here. No, th- this film feels like um, it feels like a cash-in sequel. Not yeah, that the first yeah. Sicario was like the, the hugest hit or anything like that, but it, it feels like a very cheaply thrown together follow-up to try and rake a bit more money out of it from the studio system rather than anything that anyone had any real passion uh, to create. Uh, It it feels rote. It's by the numbers and it doesn't really work on that basis. Again, the the fact of its existence is what offends me most because... (laughs) Um, there's just there's no such thing as an original idea Hollywood it's like oh here's our vaguely successful thing we must have more of them immediately like, do something yeah. different yeah. and not that Sicario from 2015 was a massively original idea um, mm. but it was an entirely valid world in which to set a film it's interesting and it was done particularly well a lot of tension there was moral ambivalence there was um, a real sense of dread throughout it mm. really interesting I had some things to say Nothing particularly deep, I don't think, but you yeah. know, it had some some things to say there. And then, so you set this in this conflict in the border of the US and Mexico with the cartels and things. And you have these characters and they're doing these things. Okay, there was not one character in that first film that really was like a character, like, I want to see more of this character. No. It was a massively plot-driven film, not a character-driven film. Yeah. Really. And it's the setting and the plot that was of particular interest there. And if you're going to make a character based on, or make a sequel based on the character in the first film, it's definitely not Josh Brolin's character that you want to do yeah. it from. 
Right, that's what they've done. Yeah, as you mentioned, it's playing Mad Libs at the start of this. Oh, they're they're terrorists. They're Mexicans. They're they're Middle Eastern. They're terrorists. They're drug dealers. Like, make your mind up. Yeah. <laughs> and now people are more valuable than cocaine. Mm. Not really. Yeah, and also, uh, <laughs> this was bothering me during it. I've kind of stopped thinking about it a little bit. Uh, now it's coming back to me more. At the beginning, um, say that because. The idea is that the cartels were paid to help these terrorists from Yemen get into the United States to Mexico. Yeah. Um, and say, so now we've, because they've helped, we've recategorised them as... I think there's role for Matthew Medine there, actually. He's not in it very much. Yeah. Um, we them as terrorists. Now you can, like, you basically have more stuff to um, go after them with. Yeah, but... All you're going to do by having terrorists go through the border is make it more difficult to get through the border. And I'm thinking, this is very, very stupid. <laughs> then the film itself addresses it. And it didn't actually help because the, the film goes on to say, oh yeah, if you've got... Do you know what happened after the terrorist attacks of September um, 2001? Price of cocaine went up. Terrorism's good for business. A, a tight border's good for business. And I'm thinking... Uh, I'm calling on this because A... The film actually doesn't bother with drugs at all. They're never mentioned again. Drugs aren't even in the film. So it seems like the, the cartels seem to exist in this film as an end to themselves, not just for something to make money. Yeah. Uh, and then um, yeah, a tight border is good for business, but yeah, but you've made it more difficult to get your drug shipments through. How is that good for business? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, um, um, it doesn't make any sense. No. And. Um, a lot of the film is spent talking about or following around a young guy who joins a, a Mexican gang and sort of becomes sort of becomes a sicario and training himself. And he's so important to the plot of this film that we've not mentioned him once uh, <laughs> in, in all the recap. Um, so, yeah, strangely structured, strangely written. Just lots of lots of things are thrown at a wall and none of it really seems to have joined together. It's lots of separate messes. It's not even one cohesive mess. Yeah, bit of a bit of a disappointment, really. Uh, still manages somehow to be entertaining just through force of talent for everyone else around it. But yeah, the, the script is bad. <laughs> yes. And uh, t- yeah, tough to get around that. Yeah, it feels like the second half of the film largely exists to set up a third film. Yes, yes. So exactly. little of consequence happens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and for all that, I still found it enjoyable to watch, but it's just... Uh, uh, it's, 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 the film shouldn't exist is the big problem I have with it, because there's no mm. reason for it. It doesn't add anything. And because it barely impacts the story of the first one, it doesn't really take anything away from the first one, which bad sequels can do. They can yeah. like lessen the impact of a story in the first one. We're back to The Phantom Menace, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it just adds nothing. It's utterly pointless film. I don't know why it exists at all. And yet, somehow, somehow, it is, <laughs> it's the most enjoyable film we've seen uh, on this podcast and is the only one we can even grudgingly recommend. A disappointing bunch of films this time, alas. Yes, uh, one we'll barely recommend <laughs> and four we'd recommend you run away streaming from. <laughs> well, it gives a fair bit to talk about, so hopefully that was entertaining to people listening, but not much in the way of recommendations this month, alas. No, no we suffer so you don't have to. F- if there's anything you would like to recommend to us that you think we might enjoy, then why not hit us up through various forms, either Twitter, at FudsOnFilm, 
facebook.com slash fudsonfilm or podcast at fudsonfilm. I guess that'll wrap us up for today. Uh, we'll be back in a mere 10 days or so talking about some Frederick Forsyth adaptations. Uh, but until that time, I shall bid you adieu. Hi, I've been Scott Morris, and I'm sure Drew Tavendale still remains Drew Tavendale. It is the truth. Fairly well. Tizzah!